Welcome back in to the David L. Gray Show, Voicing Truth and Reason. We are continuing our conversation with our friends about the most important things that that aha moment, that moment that really moved them deeper into the faith. So I have a fascinating guest for you today. Um, it's John Henry Weston. He is the co-founder of LifeSite News, amongst many other things. So looking forward to a fascinating conversation. So let's get to it. Hovering over the skies of a post-Christian society, we have spotted a man with a donut in one hand oh. and rosary beads in another. Child, I'm about to whoop Satan's behind. He is boldly proclaiming truth and reason like no rigid Catholic ever has before. The David L. Gray Show begins now. John Henry Weston is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. He and his wife, Diane, and her eight children live in Ottawa Valley in Ontario, Canada. He has spoken at conferences, retreats, and appeared on radio and television throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. John Henry Weston serves as the executive of the Canada National March for Life Committee and the annual National Pro-Life Youth Conference. He is a consultant to Canada's largest pro-life organization, Campaign Life Coalition, and serves as the executive on the Ontario branch of the organization. He has run uh, three times for political office in the province of Ontario, representing Family Coalition Party. John Henry earned a Master of Arts from University of Toronto School in Child, Child Clinical Psychology and an Honors BA from York University in Psychology. And now he's on the David L. Gray Show. Welcome in, John Henry Weston. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. Yeah. You know, I've read you for a lot of years. And over the past few years, I've I've listened to you on some of the programs, the John Henry Weston Show, of course. Also, there's... Um, um, the show you do with Father Altman and, and another guest that's on Faith and Reason. Also, you have Ladies of Life Night. You have the Mother Miriam show. You have the show at um, Bishop Strickland, amongst many other things at, at LifeSite News. So we get to hear a lot of you, read a lot of you in some of the media that you're producing. What I really don't get a chance, um, at least myself, maybe some of my audience, at least we don't get a chance so much really just to hear from you about you so i want to take an opportunity just to see if i can sit you down and give you an opportunity and give us really my audience an opportunity just to learn more about you and, and to probe your mind about some of the most important things super sounds great yeah um <clears throat> so i want to just really hop right into it just a hot mm -hmm. topic about what's going on right now what what surprised you or did not surprise you about what's happened to Father Frank Pavone? Well, Father Frank is uh, has been a friend for twenty years or so. He's been he's one of the most talented priests in terms of being able to give a homily in one second, uh, unannounced. He can preach, and he's a real gift for preaching. He's obviously got a massive gift of being able to promote the message for life. And he's done that in a kind of a singular fashion. He has not only promoted the message, probably what has got him into trouble has been his encouragement of all other priests of the need to put forward the pro-life message. 
in a, in a way that's really uncompromising. So he, like many in the pro-life movement, particularly the Catholics in the movement, have called for the bishops to live up to Canon 915, to deny Holy Communion to pro-abortion politicians because it creates, creates a massive scandal, not only among Catholics, but around all the world when they see Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, et cetera, et cetera, receiving Holy Communion. Um, it it make, gives the false impression that the church doesn't think much of it. So with regard to what's going on with Father right now, um, it's actually not so much of a surprise. Um, this never would have happened under John Paul II, under, mm -hmm. under Pope Benedict, because, you know, there the agenda was clear. Pope John Paul II was fierce in his defense of life. And um, as he told Father Paul Marx, this is the most important work in the world. Um, you then had <clears throat> Father Pavone largely take up sort of a mantle of, of uh, Father Marx's. Uh, Father Marx, of course, with which uh, was with yeah. HLI. So this happening now under Francis is not all that surprising. A lot of the bishops have been after Father Pavone for various reasons. One, he's very issue focused. Uh, I believe it was Cardinal Connor who who gave him this work uh, to do and and committed it in a minute. Um, but as I said, that that part of his story, I don't know that that well. I do know him personally for twenty years and having been rock solid on the issues. And he's been, you know, outspoken, and that's the real that's the real issue here. I know that there was controversies around it, but all those controversies to me um, are easily explained. And, you know, the controversy about the blasphemy or the, the child on the altar, uh, the unborn yeah. dead baby on the altar. So all those things are not surprising to me. What's the only thing that's shocking is that they actually went through with it because mm. hopefully they're going to get the pushback that, uh, that the faithful will muster because of this scandal. Yeah. Them doing something to this, um, to a priest is visible, someone as notable worldwide as Father Frank Pavone. <laughs> If they can do this to him, is anyone safe? <laughs> well, if you read the letter, so Christophe Pierre, who's the papal nuncio, the papal representative, the Pope's representative in America, he sent the letter on December the 13th to the bishops. One of the, one of the scandals was, by the way, Father Pavone <laughs> was not told first. Um, so apparently, according to the letter, the decision was made by the dicastery for clergy on November the 9th. And very interestingly, in the letter, it also says that it's not able to be changed. It's it's unappealable. Mm -hmm. So we've just had canon lawyer, uh, Father Murray, who appears on EWTN often. He notes the only one who could make a judgment like that that's unappealable yeah. is the Pope himself. Yeah. So that's yeah. hugely controversial all by itself. But uh, with regard to that, it's the um, the letter comes out says that I'm sorry. What was the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah, is anyone safe? I mean, you look at people like Father Altman, Father Howman, you know, all the the coalition, the council priests, the people people they they represent. If they can do this do this to someone as visible as Father Frank Pavone, um, is anyone is anyone safe? Yeah, no, that that's sort of a loaded question because is is anyone safe? Well. We're safe in the love of Christ, yeah. and this is still Christ's church, and it doesn't matter. We might be called to do different things, very, very difficult things, 
and perhaps even martyrdom. And as Father uh, Altman always says, we might be called to martyrdom, red or white. Uh, and this is very much so far a white martyrdom for Father Pavone. But yeah, no one's safe in, in regard to uh, the kind of, are we safe in our positions or no? This happened first, most notably to Cardinal Burke. I mean, Cardinal Burke was young for a cardinal and he was unceremoniously removed uh, and given a, a position that, um, let's just put it this way, it was a, it was just a spot to put him with the Order yeah, I think of Malta. It was the, the Knights of Malta or something like that. Malta is yeah, a great place. Right. I mean, it's a great place of vacation, but yeah, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't so much. He went to Malta. He was put in charge of, or the prefect of the sovereign yeah. military order of Malta, and all that meant was it was mostly a ceremonial position. Yeah, and then of course he was relieved of that as well. Um, that was no joke. That was that was really the first sign that mm -hmm. uh, this is coming. And then you had a very faithful order of priests, the Franciscan Friars of Immaculate, removed as well. So no one is sort of safe from that perspective as i said we're yeah. we're safe in the loving arms of christ we're safe as john bosco's dream revealed um anchored between uh the pillar of the sacred heart of jesus the eucharist and our lady and that's yeah. our safety nice so i'm going to drop just the machinations <laughs> for a second that comes out of the vatican for a moment and really just Talk about you. I'm really so imp impressed with LifeSide News. Um, I know you've been you've been around. I became a Catholic in 2006, so you you were around longer than you know back when I was still you know Freemason and uh, Gnostic and Protestant. But um, oh, and by the way, before we go, I want you to come on my show and talk about that. <laughs> oh my, yeah, yeah. You you've I've really been impressed with some of the things you your um LifeSide News has written about Freemasonry. You have a really good writer over there that. Does it make the mistakes that a lot of people do? So I'm again really impressed by the work you guys are, are doing over there on that, on that topic. I'd be happy to. Um, I'm gonna put a, a clip up here on the screen. Um, here's a shot of a screenshot from 2002 from LifeSite News, and really, it looks like just some links, um, some some essays to some essays and some things that's going on. What was going on when you first? What was your vision back then for starting LifeSite News? So way back in the day, we actually started in 1997 online. Before oh that, God. I was doing a little news uh, for by email for a year and a half, two years or so. Wow. So all we did basically was to start with, look at the news that would be important for pro-life leaders um, from around the world. It was immediately... Uh, international, because the head of Campaign Life Coalition at the time, who's Jim Hughes, uh, he hired on both as part of Campaign Life Coalition, both Steve Jalsovac and myself, we're the co-founders of LifeSite. And um, so they were wanting to build a website, um, and uh, Steve was tasked with that. He uh, contacted a man who's now a friend of mine, uh, Tony Chasta, and he built that for, the, for Campaign Life Coalition in 1997. And the strange part was, it wasn't intended to be a news site. It was just called LifeSite. And the original URL was LifeSite.net. And uh, it was just okay. meant to be the website for the pro-life group. Someone in the office said, why don't you put John Henry's news thing on the website? <laughs> so they did okay. that. Okay. And the news thing, as you see the links there, all it was was headlines. And the headlines went to a story. 
usually only about five a day because in the beginning I was the only one doing it. Oh. Then on and on it went over the years from 97, 98, 99. Steve, if he wasn't doing administration and help with Camping Life, would, would then start to contribute. And, and then we had a bunch of writers come on. To let you know the evolution, though, um, we've gone from a two-man show to 70. Wow. We've gone from basically not being known uh, except as maybe a little pro-life group, well, not little for Canada, but the big pro-life group in Canada, but very little views, to the past few years, we're probably averaging 100 million page views a year. Wow. And wow. the video views just have gone crazy. So in the past few years, we've started into video and we got crazy big and then YouTube cut yeah. us off hard. Um, we were doing really amazing and then we were hard cut. So we had to go pivot to other things like Rumble. We had a really small uh, YouTube channel in my name called the John Henry Weston Show channel. Mm -hmm. um, and that started to really bloom right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's getting over, I think this month we hit 2.5 million views wow. uh, on YouTube alone. And wow. uh, that doesn't take into account the other platforms where we're on. So yeah, it's it's grown a lot. And what most people don't know is we also run an alternative to GoFundMe because they went woke. Uh, we all, That's called Life Funder. We yeah. run a petition site that's very successful called Life Petitions. And so there's lots going on behind the surface. Wow. I remember, man, it had to be so... It's interesting. So you start off sort of like an aggregate. You're sort of doing from a life perspective. Well, back then, maybe Drudge Report was kind of doing with like a, a lot of news. But I remember some years ago, you got linked, Drudge linked uh, uh, article that you got. I forget what it was, but he linked you guys. And I guess it blew up. And I remember you sent out some sort of fundraiser said, hey, the website went down. We need some help. Talk about, <laughs> talk about that. So... That was a long, long time ago. Okay. Um, and uh, the very first time Drudge linked to us, uh, we did, the website went down. We were unable to handle the traffic. Um, we had no idea because the traffic came in so fast and furious, it was unreal. So that was very educational for us. We had to structure it so that we could handle massive, massive traffic. Um, and there were quite a few of those. And we finally got a team member who is just so good with video. He's such an experienced pro. And now he has a, a few working with him that, God willing, that won't ever happen again. Uh, so, yeah, no, we're, it, was, it was stunning, though, because the, the traffic influx at the time we were not ready for, couldn't believe. Yeah. I think yeah. we really majorly hit it off in around the year 2000. Um, it was actually because we started reporting more on church activities, yeah, and uh, that's where it's things started to really balloon. And what I mean, what I want to get into that as well. Um, what was the bridge there? I mean, because you're, you're covering news related to life. I put up another screenshot here. Um, back in 2000, I think it's 2012. You're covering Obama. <laughs> it's funny here in the, the, the image that I'm showing that Obama's condemning forced abortions and, um, you know, he, he's talking about homosexuality and you're covering homosexuality <clears throat> and stem cell and euthanasia. What what made you realize before I get into the Catholic question, I want I want to talk about what made you. I, I you know, I, I've been talking about this for, for a lot of years and I know you guys, you know, obviously as well. 
I think nowadays people are starting to make the connection how dangerous the so-called LGBT movement is to the whole life issue. I, I was talking about this maybe like over a decade ago, how this is the pro-life issue, I think, um, that whole uh, agenda. What, 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 what was it that made you guys transition to just looking at the abortion issue to seeing, was that always the case? Were you always looking at the bigger picture or, or, or was yeah. this something that, you, that, that sort of caught your attention? Yeah, no, it was it was actually always the case for us. Um, so right from the beginning, we had an outlook that's actually very similar to what Our Lady of Fatima said. Do you remember that letter that Cardinal Kafara revealed from Sister Lucy about the final battle between our Lord and the raid of Satan being over marriage and the family? Yeah. Well, that outlook was for me clear from the faith but also for camping life the organization which we came out of okay. because they were involved at the un so early on in the 80s i think it was mid 80s john paul ii asked for pro-life groups to get involved at the united nations level and that's where you have now the groups like cfam um active well camping life was doing that right from the beginning too in the mid 80s okay. and so they had a couple of really good lobbyists who went to the UN and that's where we learned this confluence of the issues homosexuality abortion contraception um, the whole movement even against God in the classroom all this stems from a singular movement and it's amazing to see the confluence and it's the same people working on it I remember we <clears throat> studied the group that was dealing with the morning after pill and they had this international meeting and a it told us that they were coordinating around the world and that's why things would roll out sort of simultaneously all over the place because they were coordinating internationally but not only that we learned hey it's the same crowd that's promoting both in fact we in in canada uh jim hughes said a as a funny saying he calls them rent a mob because they're the same folks who are there, uh, you know, doing the anti-life stuff. And then they're the same LGBT activist crowd. And then they're yeah. the same. So it's it's been quite something. Now we had those had to be like, so it's the same crowd, but it also means that therefore it's the same money. It's the same big dollars that's funding all this stuff. And, you know, when a couple of years, well, I guess after 2016 or whatever, you know, the whole critical race theory became a big thing, you know, lately, and so did the Black Lives Matter. And I kept telling people, the same people who are telling you that Black Lives Matter is consistent with Catholic <clears throat> theology are the same people that tell you that critical race theory is, the same people that tell you that you can vote for Democrats. These are, even even, even in the Catholic Church, these are the same people who say the same things, right? Yeah. And they're the same people who say about climate change and the need for controlling your population because of the, the you know, harm you're doing to the environment. It's all of a piece. And yeah. it is, I mean, you can look at certain trends. So George Soros' funding, because he's still alive, but Hewlett Packard before him were funding this kind of agenda right from the beginning. Really? So were the Rothschilds, wow. so were the um, yeah. Gates Foundation. Yeah. They're all funding all the same things. They fund the woke agenda. And a lot of people don't know this, but if you ever listen to China, Listen to China speaking at the UN. It's the whole woke agenda. It's unreal. You wouldn't think that, oh, China, they're, they're just a repressive regime. Well, they are a repressive regime. Absolutely. They persecute 
Christianity, Catholicism specifically, that's a whole other question. Yeah. But with their forced abortion program, you would think that the, the, the people who are so value reproductive rights would hate China because they're forcibly aborting women who want to have more than one child. I mean, and what they did was just horrendous. It was torturous and, and sickening. And yet they're all chumsy with all the promoters of abortion and vice versa. Yeah. It goes so bad that you have the head of the Vatican office that deals with that or, or deals with, um, you know, these population control issues, which is ridiculous, but nonetheless, admire China publicly, just yeah. like Gates did and so many of these leaders. Yeah. But it's unreal. So it, it is very much a coordinated agenda. Yeah. And it makes me sometimes, I guess I'm going to even say sometimes, it's just like I have antennas now. When I see a certain group of people for something, John Henry Weston, um, I'm automatically like my 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 thing is just to go against it initially until I research 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 it further. Even when the whole Ukraine thing happened, and I saw the people who were like saying, "Yeah, yeah, let's 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 fund Ukraine." I saw the, that the people who were saying that, I said, "Wait, these are the these are the people who do say and do strange things throughout the world." So it's like I'm always suspicious. Do you have? Or I guess your antennas are like that as well. Well, they do provide us some good clues because once uh, once they give you that heads up to let you understand, well, here are the same people with the bad agenda coming at you with something, you definitely take it with a huge grain of salt and investigate first. Yeah. Um, at some point in time, um, I can really nail down the date going back to the Wayback Machine that... that um, um, that site I used to track, you know, where we look at, you know, people's trends on their website. I couldn't really find the exact date, but at some point in time, I recall my memory that I, I would go to life site news and all of a sudden it would have like a Catholic section, right? Um, talk about that. Is, is life, how, how is life site news or is it distinctly your, your, your worldview? Is it distinctly Catholic or not? Or is this just a, do you attract a huge Catholic audience that you wanted to just to nail down certain things? And, and in that, if you can also um, talk about why was it important to start covering the machinations and the doings of Pope Francis? That's a, that's a big question. But for us, we've always come at things from a Catholic perspective. Um, I mean, I can speak personally. I come out of, <clears throat> uh, as, you, as you know, as you heard there, a background of psychology. And uh, the reason why I actually didn't continue with psychology, I was about two years away from a PhD, was because I felt the need to share the fullness of the truth. So I could do all sorts of great things with psychology. I could offer people great treatment and great ways to counsel them on how to avoid sort of disorders and deal with obsessive thoughts. All sorts of things would have been great. But I couldn't offer them the fullness of truth. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, in the pro-life movement, you can help people avoid abortions and help them care for babies, but in not offering them the fullness of the truth, are you missing something? And indeed you are, in fact, in the most massive way. But mm -hmm. when you look at things from the fullness of the truth, well, that gives you the perspective of life and therefore eternal life. And that's what we're all working on, not in just the pro-life movement or the movement for the family or um, even the movement to fight the sort of globalist agenda. 
everyone has to be in it for eternal life because that's all that really counts. Filton J. Sheen once said, if you aren't saving souls, you aren't saving anything. Wow. And so our launch into Catholic things, into more Catholic things, in addition from the beginning, because in the beginning we were covering contraception, which is a very Catholic thing, but yeah. the church involvement happened really in the year 2000. Uh, in 2000, we had always been following this so-called March of Women. In March, every, every March, they come up with a march, usually on March 8th. Uh, and they did this sort of, you know, Day for Women and March of Women. And it was always small, but in the year 2000, they were doing a millennial thing. So they said, you know, it's going to be a big thing. And I would go to the website of, you know, the sponsors of the March of Women, because it was a pro-abortion march, pro-lesbian march, but masquerading on the term March of Women when they didn't give a darn about women, particularly women in the womb. So I went to the webpage of, you know, their sponsors and lo and behold, the bishops of Canada were mentioned, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. Wow. And I thought, oh, that must be impossible. So of course I called. So <laughs> I talked to a priest on the phone who told me, oh, what? yeah, we, 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 we gave them a, just a nominal donation. I was like, but father, they, they're a pro-abortion group. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We're they're 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 supportive of women, and we, you know, we're just trying to support that. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, how much did you give them? Oh, it was nominal. We said, you know, like ten thousand dollars. <laughs> and I was like, holy cow, that's, that's yeah. nominal. That's, that's not a nominal <laughs> donation. <laughs> yeah. So interestingly, same year we started ninety-seven. The group that we were founded out of Campaign Life started a March for Life. So I called up the head who was, you know, uh, still at the time, uh, my my employer, and said to him, hey, his name is Jim Hughes. I said, hey, Jim, how much do the, um, do the bishops of Canada give you for the March for Life every year? He nearly fell out of his chair laughing <laughs> because they gave them a big fat goose egg. So I told him about this. $10,000 donation I was told about. And he was like, whoa, no way. So we published the story. And then guess what? The Cardinal Archbishop of Toronto, Cardinal Ambrosich, God rest his soul, came out publicly against the Bishop's Conference funding the pro-abortion March of Women. And that was huge for us because that got he sent it to us, so we published it. And then we had the national newspapers call us to find out what was going on. And sure enough, over the next few weeks, four other bishops joined the Cardinal Archbishop of Toronto in dissenting from the Bishop's Conference funding this pro-abortion march. And they were well within their rights because in the U.S., the whole U.S. Bishop's Conference boycotted anything to do with the March of Women because it was pro-abortion. Hmm. But of course, this is Canada. So we had, so there's the cardinal and four bishops opposing it. Believe it or not, we had six bishops come out publicly to support the March of Women. And wow. I don't mean to scandalize, but get this. So at the March for Life, been running for three years, we could never get a sitting bishop to celebrate a mass for the March for Life. Hmm. You know, it was thought to be too political or whatever. Hmm. 
However, there was one bishop who had a conversion. I think he went to Medjugorje, was healed of something after he retired as a bishop, mind you. Wow. And he came back, sort of converted, and he was saying a mass for the March for Life. But get this. On March 8th, 2000, hmm. six sitting bishops celebrated a mass for the pro-abortion March of Women when not a single sitting bishop would celebrate a mass for the March for Life in Canada. That's disgusting. It is. It is. But I have to say, you know, over the next uh, 25 years, or well, now 23 years, we've had beautiful participation uh, in the March for Life of Canadian bishops. So thanks be to God, things have changed. Yeah, but that's yeah, how they were yeah. back then. Yeah, thanks be to God. Um, I want to transition for a moment, just talk about just your faith journey. And so uh, if you can, just talk to us about that, like, Cradle Catholic convert. What's what's are, you're from Canada? I mean, just tell us, just tell a little bit about your your, your faith journey. Sure thing. Um, born and raised in Toronto, and born and raised by a saint of a dad. So, my dad was one of those daily mass, daily rosary Catholics. I think he in, always intended to be a priest, but then was um, inspired by the Lord to marry my mom. He hmm. did that. And my mom, I think, wanted to have a normal Catholic, um, you know, like a Sunday Catholic. But anyway, so I'm sure for her, there was some struggle with my dad because he didn't stop being a daily mass, daily rosary Catholic, even after marriage. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that situation was uh, very impressive for me in that, um, not impressive to start with, I, I must say, it was embarrassing for me because dad was persecuted for his faith, oh, not only by colleagues at work, where he, you know, tried to promote faith, even by family, even by me. I remember going to dance clubs and what, and coming home at, you know, two in the morning, and there would be my dad kneeling by his bedside. And my response was silly old man. Hmm. When my mom left my dad, uh, when I was 18, um, it was, you know, we just went further and further away in terms of the faith. I sort of left the faith at about mm, 13, 14 or so. I had to go to the church to grab a bulletin from the church to show my dad to pretend I was there. Right. So it can was... You, can, you pause, can you pause there for just a moment and just talk about yeah. that? Like, why was it important for you? Because I mean, when you're younger, it sounds like you're just a little bit embarrassed by your dad. So why did you still need to have his approval, though? It's a good question. I wanted, I guess, to get away with things, to not be in trouble, if you will. Even though dad wasn't harsh at all, he was the most loving of fathers. And I got into a lot of trouble. Because once I sort of left the faith, left going to mass, I really did fall away. And it was horrific into a life of impurity and of even problems with the law. When I when I got to university, I, I met a guy who was involved with the sort of like China mafia thing and doing just things that weren't right at all. And so I got messed up in that. Wow. And it took me from probably the time I was 13 leaving to the time I was 22. Mm. Um, you know, got in trouble even with the law. So I was driving so many times speeding and lost my license and then faked once I was caught driving again and faked to be my friend. Of course, that's fraud. 
and yeah. uh, you know it was charged for that and and eventually got ruled out or whatever or forgiven or whatever it's called but um you know i got into a really bad place wow and the turnaround for me was a book called true devotion to mary which my dad gave me and um reading it though was very difficult because once i read it <laughs> that's when i had a crisis of faith which is most weird because i was already thinking oh to come back and do something religious that's where i was reading the book in the first place but yeah. when I read the book, I realized, oh, gosh, um, it meant giving away my whole life to Christ through his holy mother. It yeah. was all day, every day. It wasn't like Sunday mornings. I guess in my mind, it was like I could go and give up one hour on Sunday mornings for a Catholic lucky charm. So my life wouldn't be so you know, crappy as it is right now. So you knew so I mean, so it was, I mean, you were kind of aware of the life, you know, you knew it wasn't how you envision your life being you knew you're off off track and so like you're re you're you're reading a book that your father gave you just to maybe <clears throat> figure out a way to make sense of your life and get back on some sort of track but the book ended up being some sort of recon a conversion moment for you sort of it was more challenging than conversion mm. See, dad was very responsible. He had raised us on Baltimore Catechism. So we knew the faith. That's why my description of leaving the faith is it's so severe. Most people don't get the faith. I got trained in the faith from my dad, from one of the holiest men I've ever seen or known. Wow. And left it anyway. So there's a great shame in that. Yeah. And a great um, need to share the truth. Um, mm. that comes from that as well. When I read it and realized that meant my whole life, the crisis of faith, faith was this. I was ready to do one hour on Sunday morning, so I wasn't ready to do my whole life all day, every day, mm. unless it was true. But I told myself from the time I was like 13 that all of this was nonsense. That isn't true. Jesus didn't even exist. Wow. Because I couldn't live the way I was living. If it was real. Oh, okay. 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 So you, you, you had to go against what you were raised, what your father taught you just to justify Absolutely. the life that part you wanted to live. Exactly. The same reason I, I removed the scapular, you know, I, I've probably been wearing a scapular from the time I was an infant when I was 13 and, and into impurity, I had never felt the scapular before, but all of a sudden it was itchy. And then I removed it, Wow. you know, yeah. So when I got the book, when I read it, realized what it was, I went, hey, wait a minute. I don't know that this is real. So I actually literally took the book and put it under my arm and I went to my dad and I had a whole speech for him. And the speech went like this, dad, I only know one thing in life anymore. And that's that you love me because you put up with all my crap. So because you love me, I need you to tell me the truth. I read your book. It means giving away my whole life. And I don't want to do that if it's not true. So because you love me, Dad, tell me, is this true? I didn't actually answer or I didn't actually ask him the question. Because when I got to my dad to tell him all that, his life spoke to me like no words he could have issued from his mouth. It was actually particularly the sufferings he endured for the faith, like my own 
calling him silly old man. Like I remember he got a haircut from my aunt and she got around to the front of him and noticed he was moving his lips like the, the woman in the Bible without making a sound. And she knew he's praying like he always is. And she sort of whacked him with the with the you know back of the scissors saying, Can't you ever stop? I remember his work colleagues making fun of him. That mm. answered my doubt in a way nothing else could have. And mm. I don't believe in sort of immediate <clears throat> conversion or whatever, but you know what? I turned around and practiced true devotion to Mary ever since then. Wow. And I went from basically an unbeliever to a daily mass, daily rosary Catholic. And God willing, stay that way for the rest of my life. That is so phenomenal. I mean, we don't we don't know what happened right after the parable, right? Of the of the um you know, the prodigal son. Sometimes we call that story the prodigal son. We don't know what happened after the feast, right? After he returned home. We, you know. Who knows the type of life he led, you know, what, what the type of relationship he had with his brother and father after that. But I guess we do know your story. That That's quite phenomenal. I mean, you you, you return home. Um, you have this big question planned. <laughs> um, and then your father, his life just bears witness to the question that you wanted to ask. And, and there is your answer. And wow, that that is that really, man, I'm glad. I'm so happy to hear that. That 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 is really, that is really something. You know, I, you know, you know. My father's passed away. I think um, that'll be 2012. So man, like 10, 10, I guess ten years this year. And um, I still remember our last, our last conversation. It was about um, he he had so many wives, John Henry Weston. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but he never had opportunity to raise any of his kids from like from beginning to the end. And I, you know, I said, Dad, you know, would you do it again? You know, would you get married again? And um, he said, Yeah, because I never had opportunity to raise you guys from beginning to end. So, um, and I think that's that it, it, it sparked because. I was discerning priesthood back then, you know, my wife had divorced me and I was like, I'm not going to, no, I'm just going to be a priest. I'm not going to do this again, you know? <laughs> and, um, and he kept saying, ah, oh, yeah, you never know, you know? So then I pushed him. I said, would you, you know, this whole type mm -hmm. of thing? Because, you know, he had so many failed marriages. But, um, so, man, so I'm glad, I'm really glad to hear that. You know, every man has a different type of story with his, with his father. I'm so happy to have heard yours. That's, that's tremendous. But why not the priesthood? <laughs> um, so during a lot of uh, the years leading up to my conversion, I was uh, dating a girl who was Protestant. And, uh, you know, I discerned, or at least I thought, <clears throat> and I had really good spiritual directors. I had three, actually. Um, and all the most conservative priests I can find because I didn't want to fool around at all. And I thought, well, obviously I can't marry this this young lady who my heart is really given to, but obviously she's Protestant, so I can't. So I went into discernment for a priesthood uh, of exactly 18 days. I told my girlfriend at the time, I'm sorry, I can't uh, go with you any longer. I think I'm going to be a priest. And I don't know what she made of that. But 
after 18 days and all I did was pray, I went to mass every day and prayed all day and went to spiritual reduction. And that's all I did for 18 days. Um, it was given to me and my spiritual directors that I should pursue marriage with Diane. And uh, so I did. We got engaged almost immediately because I was not fooling around. I went and got a letter of dispensation from the bishop so that I could get married to her. And she agreed to allow me to raise the kids Catholic. Um, and that was very interesting because it was a discernment. And I don't ever say or think I was worthy to, for the priesthood anyhow, but I was blessed with uh, a marriage to someone who the Lord chose for me, even though I chose wrongly the first way, the first time, it was still his choice for me. And we have eight beautiful children. Wow. And uh, four years into our marriage, she joined the Catholic Church as well. Um, and that had really very little to do with me. Uh, I, our Lord uh, intervened in her life many, many times. Yeah, yeah. You said how many years after the marriage did she come into the Catholic Church? Four. Oh, four years. Wow, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so was that difficult for you? You know, we, we I guess we have that that part in common. We both married Protestants after discerning, you know, the, the priesthood. Um, for me, it was like, I guess when we were engaged, you know, I was always like, you know, it's the Church of Jesus Christ. You know, it's the Holy Eucharist. You know, just you know, hitting with you know all the all the all the hard points. You know, <laughs> and then I guess when I, I stopped, I think shortly before, maybe a year before we got married, we I stopped and I just started praying and fasting for her. You know, and then eventually, <laughs> it, just, it just you know, it just one one day we moved to another. We had to go move to another installation, another base, and um, she just said, "I'm tired of going to two churches. I'm going to become Catholic." <laughs> <laughs> Is uh, how, how did it how did it work for for Diane? So you were much smarter than I was, because remember I was dating her for years before, and I was very much an anti-Catholic Catholic. I, I wasn't practicing at all. Right. But um, when I converted, it was all about bringing her to the truth because this was crazy otherwise. So all during our engagement, and the first year of our marriage. It was, you know, daily discussion and apologetics and hopefully not in a mean way, but it was very stressful on the marriage. And so after a year, yes, it, I'm pretty thick. It took a long time. Um, that's why I'm so impressed with you. You, you picked that up sooner. Anyway, <laughs> I, I gave her over to our lady and I said, look, she's totally yours. I'm not going to bring it up at all. If she asked me any question, I'll answer it. And that's it. Yeah, and uh, yeah. our lady was able to work on her, and in the end, she was converted by the scriptures. John six became a new revelation to her, even though she'd read read it so many times before. She said to me, "It was like scales fell from her eyes, and she was able to see it for the first time." Wow. And uh, so she believed in the Eucharist first as a Protestant, and then the Protestants freaked out because she wanted to kneel down at her <laughs> prayer service uh, when they handed out the bread and. Um, her dad was asking, what are, you, what are you doing? You know, and you know, I believe it's real. And uh, anyway, so oh, wow. yeah, that's that's what brought her into the church eventually. Oh, wow. Wow, man. What a, what, a, what, a, what a story, man. And all your so eight kids. Um, what's, the, what's the youngest? The youngest is 11. We actually had seven in a row. Uh, 
after at first we thought we couldn't have kids because we went about a year and a half with no children and um, mm -hmm. from being worried as a protestant about having too many kids to thinking we're not going to have any was quite the struggle for her and then all of a sudden we had um basically a child every year and a half or maybe a little bit wow. less so we had seven from uh, in nine years and wow. then uh my wife lost three in a row and uh, we thought we'd never have another child and um i don't know if you have time for a little story there's a really interesting story yeah do we have time okay so really quickly those losses were very difficult um first one on her birthday the next one on her our 16th wedding anniversary and the third one on christmas and with each of those miscarriages she prayed and said to her lord have you forgotten me you're supposed to get gifts on your birthday on your anniversary on christmas not lose them and so that year that after that christmas we had a new year's eve party and we invited over six couples that were friends of ours and this was not the year of the miscarriage it was the following year so we had that last miscarriage on christmas and this so this was not the new year right away but the next one and she had prayed and told our Lord, uh, by next year, I want a baby that we can hold in our arms. And everybody, of course, was saying we're crazy because you already have seven kids. What are you doing praying for more? Anyway, yeah. um, that New Year, we always had that New Year's Eve party. And that New Year's Eve party came and there were six couples we invited. Five of the women were pregnant. And so wow. my wife went to the bathroom and cried. And she prayed to our Lord, said, you forgot me again. And uh, it was two weeks later that we learned uh, that she was pregnant. She was actually pregnant at the party. We just didn't know. And you know how it wow. is when you've had so many miscarriages, you have like ultrasound after ultrasound? Yeah. Well, I think ultrasound number three, they said, hey, do you want to know the sex of the baby? And we were like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, she said, it's a boy. And we both gulped. Uh, the reason why is because at that point we had already had five boys and my family tradition is to give three names. We had already used 15 boy names. <laughs> so oh, <okay. laughs> here we are. So a couple days later, she said, well, what about Zachary or Zachariah, excuse me, Zachariah as the name. And I said, well, it's, it's okay. Yeah. How about Zachary? Because I read the Dear Rames version of the Bible. And Zachary is the father of John the Baptist there. Mm -hmm. But she's a redhead. So, of course, she wouldn't agree. And so we were back and forth for like a week about how I was saying it has to be Zachary. She was saying it should be Zachariah. So one of our closest friends, one of the ladies who was at that New Year's Eve party who was pregnant, called up my wife and said, Diane, you don't have to worry. I had a dream. Your baby was born healthy. But she said it was really weird in the dream. You and John Henry were arguing about the name of the child. He was saying it should be Zachary. You sure are saying it should be Zachariah. Are you serious? We had never told anybody about the name debate, about anything like that. Wow. So we were sure that God wanted the name Zachary or Zachariah. So my wife Googles, what does Zachariah mean? Zachariah means the Lord remembers so he was indeed the answer to her prayer, you've forgotten me. Man. Yeah. Man. 
What a story. I mean, everybody's blessed just for hearing that, especially just people who do struggle with miscarriages. You know, my wife and I, we, we, we've been through one. It's, 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 you know, it is traumatic. Um, um, but just to hear the faithfulness that you and your beloved had, that's, that's tremendous. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, You've been speaking, you know, ever since I guess Canada has let you out the play. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know you've been returning, going places to speak. I know in the United States you've been to the Catholic Identity Conference. Um, I want to talk to you about at the conference last year, you know, you and um, Michael, uh, Michael, Michael Matt. Matt. Um, and another gentleman, you guys were on stage at opening conference and you had, there was like a resist Francis, resist Francis. Um, well, what does that, what does that, what does that mean? Why is that, why is that important? So for the last nearly decade now, I, I can't believe I'm saying that, but we have had a revolution in the church. So especially for us, we come out of the pro-life movement and even when things got tough, during all of the late 80s and through the 90s with what was going on in the church. You know, bishops wouldn't support you in the pro-life movement, but you always knew the Pope had your back. John Paul II was so strong on life. And Benedict, of course, was always there. He was not only supportive, he was sort of John Paul's right-hand man as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, and as, as Ratzinger, of course, and then he becomes Pope. So the pro-life movement is supported again in this massive way. Yeah. yeah, but then along comes Francis, and such a revolution happens. Yeah. All the same folks that we fought at the UN as the pro-life movement, Jeffrey Sachs, Ban Ki Moon, um, the head of the whole population control movement in the first place, the one who wrote the original book, Paul Ehrlich, he wrote the Population Bomb. They're all invited to the Vatican. Yeah, all these, all these, you, you named everybody who has a seat at the table right now. That's the thing. The whole of the movement against life, at least in this direction of the need for population control, are in the Vatican. They're consultors even, as Jeffrey Sachs is, to the Pontifical Academy. It, it's, it's unbelievable. So that's only one small part of the revolution. Early on in Francis's days, he praised Italy's leading proponent of abortion. She, her name is Emma Bonino. She yeah. was an illegal abortionist back in the day. I think she did like 10,000 abortions. Then she fled the country. Then she came back and was made a politician. She then advocated for abortion, homosexuality, the whole woke agenda, if you want to call it that. And she did work on immigration, I guess, that Francis liked. He called her in publicly in the major newspaper. And remember, she advocates for abortion to this day. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, Emma Benino was in the papers railing against the decision. So just so that you know who she is, well, get this. Pope Francis praised her publicly in the paper as one of the nation's forgotten greats. He praised her and met her so much that this, the most pro-abortion politician in the country, who, by the way, was an illegal abortionist, never repented, proud of her work, still continues it, was speaking at Catholic churches because of her relationship with Pope Francis. 
and I could go on and on and on with these kinds of things happening, not only on the issue of life, but on the issue of family, you know, the supporting this nun who has opened a home for trans where she lets the trans couples live together. He had a trans couple come to visit him. There were two women, one who took chemicals and mutilated herself to look like a man, and he called them married and happy. And I could, as I said, I could go on and on and on. So this is a massive revolution. But again, LifeSite has always been about Caritas and Veritate. Because you know what? Both Steve and I were on the other side. Steve Jelsovac, he was a member of Zero Population Growth. Wow. <laughs> and now he has eight kids. They're all older than mine. And he has like 30 grandchildren or something like that. So, and that number grows by the day, so I can never keep up with it. So we've been on the other side. We know what it's like. We have no hatred at all for those on the other side. We pray for them for their conversion because we know what life is like on the other side. Yeah. yeah. And you you, you guys do have a unique understanding of um, that side. Yeah. Yeah. So we we pray and we've been praying for the conversion of Pope Francis, Mm -hmm. uh, even publicly so. Uh, for a long, long time. At LifeSite, we pray for Pope Francis's conversion every single day. Yeah. Um, and so that's what it is. It's not about hatred. It's not about, in fact, if we hated him, we wouldn't care. And we also don't speak in a, hopefully, uh, in a manner that's derogatory and disrespectful and that demonstrates a hatred. We don't, we don't. I, I don't think so. I think I, I think I read largely pretty much everything you guys write write about um, the the pontificate is is very informative. I think sometimes information can be triggering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely think is that um, like when you link the article or you link the 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 the, the paper, a number of theologians wrote saying that these are heretical heretical teachings. Um, the most recent one was about um, the Holy Eucharist. You guys published that piece, that that letter. Um, so it can be be challenging. And um, when it, when it comes to people who would like, you know, um, you know, I call them Francis apologists, you know, those type of things. Um, sometimes what I try to explain to them is. Um, you know, yes, there's the teachings. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys can apologize for those, defend those, whatever. But then there's the whole ethos, the whole um, in, environment that that the pontificate is shaping that you describe, I think, very eloquently by the people that's at the table. Isn't that just as dangerous, even more dangerous, creating a whole in, environment of scandal and unorthodoxy, even if you don't try to change one teaching just the environment who you point as bishop who you point as cardinal that the whole thing isn't that isn't that dangerous itself absolutely that's why that statement from the corporate world people are policy it's true you will know a person by the company he keeps and that's what we're dealing with here Pope Francis has surrounded himself with heretics, known heretics. And we might see even a further revolution if he appoints this Bishop Vilma 
to the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. He already removed uh, Cardinal Milla um, and installed uh, Ladaria after that. Ladaria was a bit of a yes man, but Wilmer uh, is, I, I just returned from Germany, um, literally yesterday. And, uh, you know, Bishop Wilmer is a dangerous man in that he yeah. comes with the woke agenda. You've heard people say, oh, you know, the Synodal Way in Germany is, is bad and, you know, there's only a few bishops there fighting it, but the Vatican has fought it. Well, no, actually, if you listen to the head of the Bishops' Conference there, Cardinal Marx, who is the also, the you know, one of the advisors to Francis, he's been sort of giving quiet approbation for them all the time. The Vatican itself, like Cardinal Latin there, they've tried to fight it, but not Francis. But what will be key is if Wilmer is actually appointed to the head of the CDF. It'll be a grave scandal. It'll also show where Francis is coming from, like nothing else. And Wilmer was supposed to be appointed on Monday. He wasn't. And hopefully that's a signal that he won't be, that the pushback is too much. We'll yeah. see. But yeah. very interesting what's going on in the church right now because people are policy. And I people. wish that was it, but there's at least a few documents that Francis has changed already that is supposed to not be able to happen uh, that has shown that we're in a very strange state. I'm no theologian, but I can tell you what the teaching of the church is on, on many things, particularly related to life and family. Yeah. And I can tell you that where it's changed. So, you know, yeah. Amoris Laetitia, even if you do that mental gymnastics, gymnastics to interpret it backwards <laughs> the acta apostolica series which is the it's like the official rule book for bishops in there it defines the interpretation yeah. from the bishops of buenos aires it's the heretical interpretation and they say that's the magisterial one so that's yeah. not me that's just i'm telling you what the news is so yeah and i give you all the examples but there's one more that nobody knows about so i'll mention that one there's a exhortation put up by Pope Francis called Gaudete et Exultate. And it's, you really should look it up. In there, it talks about, it, it basically says the opposite of what John Paul and Benedict said. John Paul and Benedict were all about the supremacy of, of abortion as an issue of concern in our world today when dealing with political questions. They, it, you can look up, for instance, the letter from Benedict. Well, he was Ratzinger at the time under JP2, sent a letter to the U.S. bishops when they were considering whether or not to deny pro-abortion politicians communion. It's called Worthiness to Receive Communion. You're able to see there, Benedict lays out what he calls the non-negotiables and says how, you know, you, Catholics can disagree on just war. They can disagree on the death penalty, not on issues like abortion and euthanasia. So, in terms of what the church has always taught from the beginning on the issues when it pertains to public participation, in other words, voting, you have essentials, you have non-negotiables. So immigration, how to deal with that would obviously be one of those things where Catholics can different, differ, mm -hmm. except not according to exultate, um, Gaudete de Exultate, where now, this is an approximation, but it's pretty accurate. He said some, and he's talking about that. He's talking about the difference between immigration and abortion. Some people, he says, would consider grave, and the scare quotes are in the exhortation, grave bioethical issues 
more important than these issues referring to immigration. He said, such considerations are worthy of a politician, but not a Christian. And so it's impossible. He has adopted in an exhortation the um, seamless garment nonsense that we got yeah. from Bernardin that all of the leftist heretic bishops and cardinals have been promoting for the last 50 years. Wow. And there it is in an exhortation. Wow. So as soon as you said that, so that's 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 the seamless garment. Yeah, as soon as you said that, that's that's yeah, that's that's <laughs> again very troubling <laughs> to say the least. Does LifeSite News have a a preference when it comes to like liturgical rights? You know, here in, in you know you've traveled the world. You know, this is the. The dichotomy in the United States, the bifurcation of, you know, these two rights is kind of a weird conversation, you know, in other parts of the world, because even in France, you know, you could go, you know, so many different liturgical rights you could go to. But uh, the United States, you know, there, you know, there's the conversation the TLM versus, the, you know, um, the Nervous Order. I don't know if there's that 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 dichotomy in, in Canada, but does LifeSite News take a side in the, the so-called Twitter liturgical wars? Um not in a way many people might think. And I'm sorry, um, I should not say Twitter liturgical wars. I, I think there's yeah. a liturgical war in the Vatican as well. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does Twitter? So, I mean, does the LifeSite News take a, a, a side there? Um, not in the way many people might think. Okay. So what we have at LifeSite is a wide array of Catholics, but all Orthodox. So. For instance, I have a preference myself for the Latin Mass. I can't really get to one. So locally here, we have a very orthodox Novus Ordo, um, which we attend every single day. Well, I do every single day. And we're very much part of the life of the church here. Um, we do have a Latin Mass some 25 minutes away on Sundays at 4 p.m., <laughs> It's always very hard to get to, uh, but love that as well. But when I travel, there's much more availability for the Latin Mass, so I always avail myself of that when I can. Mm -hmm. So, but we have at LifeSite a wide array of people. Uh, we have people who go exclusively to Latin Mass, and then people who go exclusively to the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. um, but all Orthodox. It's all about loving Christ in the sacraments, and doing so in the most um, beautiful way possible. And that's why I think it is true that everyone at LifeSite has a great appreciation for the Latin Mass because it's so beautiful, because it, in mm -hmm. its symbolism and it, the actions of the priest so exemplify the reality of what's happening. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for, for a lot of us, Latin doesn't come very easily and so on and so forth. So there's all sorts of reasons. But the appreciation for the beauty and the reverence and the solemnity of the of the Latin Mass is, is there for everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. There's one challenge that sometimes I hear, you know, out in the Catholic verse and social media. Um, LifeSite News is soft on the society St. Pius X. <laughs> Yep, yep, that's that's heard out there. Um, perhaps it's because we're Canadian. 
or at least I'm Canadian and, and Steve is Canadian. This is where we're founded. Um, we tend not to get into the, the wars. Um, so we do have a couple members of staff, I think, that are at least attend the SSPX. I don't know that we have a member of the SSPX on staff. So one of the things that did happen was um, Michael Voris, who is or was a friend, I hope he'd still consider me a friend, but I don't know, um, asked us to look into a, a, some research they did on the SSP Act and abuse cases. And so we thought, well, um, it's not usually our bailiwick, but we can, we can go for it. In fact, we have a good opportunity because we have this fellow who's a reporter, a really good reporter, who um, attends an SSPX chapel, and therefore he, he can probably work with them to get their side of the story and figure out what's going on. Yeah. So we put our reporter on that. Stephen Cox is his name. And he yeah, Stephen, Stephen he's, he's a good friend of mine. <laughs> he, he did many, many months of research with another senior journalist at LifeSite as well. And he reported a very tough story on the SSPX, pointing out that this was very problematic in, in terms of an abuse case that they dealt with, and they didn't deal with it very well. And we put that story out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but then we found that there was another story that we looked into, and actually Church Militant got the story wrong. Mm. So we called them up, but they were not happy to um uh, anyway with with what we did so we published that not so much referencing them but just putting out the facts of the case and then there was a lot of um consternation from that coming from church militant and so while i still you know i have great appreciation for uh michael boris and christine niles uh things have been fairly cold um ever since then and I, I hope it heals it yeah. um you know this was not uh something to uh, do in terms of what we think of the sspx that's very simple bishop schneider who i'm unworthy to but very privileged to call a, a friend um he was one of the official visitators for the vatican to the sspx so in terms of who's the authority in the church on the sspx well he's one of the great authorities and his statement on the sspx is very simple he basically says they're catholics just like everybody else and there's no restriction from catholics going there so in addition to being able to go to their masses which you've always been able to if you couldn't find another latin mass you could even support them. This was way back already in the 80s. You could donate to them in addition to receiving communion. But what you couldn't do was go to confession or have your marriage solemnized right. by them. Right. But guess what? Remember, Pope Francis opened up that possibility. And then after the year of mercy, he extended that indefinitely. So now we have a situation where the Pope has given these priests, SSPX priests, almost like a universal jurisdiction, being the Bishop of Rome, he's the Bishop of uh, the, sort of, of the Universal Church, so they have sort of universal jurisdiction 
to hear confessions and to solemnize marriages, where most of the time for diocesan priests, they're bound by their bishop for hearing public confessions. But these guys can do it anywhere in the world. So that's, I mean, those are the facts of the situation regarding the SSPX and their situation. And that's what we go by. That's all we have. Mm-hmm. So you're just saying, just I mean, just just the, the facts of the case, at least concerning their, you know, what sacraments can um, um, Latin Catholics re- receive from them is um, is that's just a fact of, of the case about the the year of mercy being extended by Pope Francis. That's that's a fact of the case. So I see what you're you're definitely saying there. So yeah, yeah, yeah I'm happy to hear that. You know, I um, you know, I've done work with um, church militant Michael and Christine. You know, people I consider friends. So I'm definitely here, happy to, um, definitely here that you're open to, you know, whatever there is between these two. You, your, your two groups. Happy that you're happy to see it healed in in the future one day. Because we're talking about uh, Saint Michael's Media and LifeSite News. The Catholic world is. Most people, this is inside baseball, to be honest. Most people don't know about this tension. I mean, but the Catholic world is just much better off with both of you. And the Catholic world is blessed by both of you. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it is, uh, I'm happy to hear, you know, your side of the story. So I appreciate that. And, and speaking of that, though, I mean, I, I guess I, I set it up just talking about where Catholic media is. Um, now, this is really my, my final inquiry. Um, just where Catholic media is now, um, obviously, there's two big players in this space. <coughs> St. Michael's Media is, is yourself, at least, you know, this, this talking about a certain thing. But, you, you know, of course, there's other people. There's, you know, EWTN, of course, a huge juggernaut. But, you know, they're they're on a, on a, a different trajectory, you know, so to speak. But this is all Catholic media. Looking at you, where you've come over the past two decades, um, and I'll also say this to um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth in his in his encyclical *Humana Genus*, uh, was principally about Freemasonry. But in, in the later paragraphs of that encyclical, he he had spoke about he had outlined the things that the Freemasons are doing, their machinations against the Church. This whole thing about separation of church and state that they're pushing, and all, these are all these weird things. And he had outlined five things that he thought the bishops <coughs> and laity and the priests should do to push back against this. And one of them was that um, we should, the bishops need to support um, Catholic media um, apostolates. Um, and he said some other things they need to support, like fraternities and things like this. But one was just Catholic media. So he saw Pope Leo XIII, you know, one of the most brilliant popes, saw the role of Catholic media in the world to push back against Satan in the world, how he uses organizations and media to advance his goals. Um, so I'd like you to comment on Catholic media, which you've seen over the past, you know, three decades, how far has come where it needs to be and how do you see you and um steve how do you see life site news playing into that in the future so you know it is a beautiful thing catholic media is a great thing particularly general catholic media so we cover a very wide variety of issues you know life faith family and freedom is is sort of a moniker for us but jimmy if you think about how 
broad our coverage is, it, it's really something. In fact, for some people, it's almost all the news they need to, other than the weather, <laughs> you know, that they need to consume. And it's a great thing to be able to have that from a faithful perspective because it orients your vision of the events that are going on that are so skewed by the mainstream media. It's not even funny. And the skew is, it's actually, it distorts the story sometimes in the mainstream to make it almost the opposite of what the truth is. And so to hear it for yourself from faithful people who dig into the details so that you can trust what they're seeing and they can show you the proof for it is really something. And we're super blessed at LifeSite to have a bunch of faithful reporters who are true reporters in the old sense of the word. They do their research, they write carefully, but they all come at it from that perspective to bring people to the truth and uh, try and bring them even to the fullness of the truth. And so that is truly a beautiful thing. You know, our mission at LifeSite uh, is we're a news and media agency focused on life, faith, family, freedom from a truthful perspective. But our goal is actually to get people to, you know, use our news in order to bring the culture to the truth, to the fullness mm. of the truth. And it's from that traditional perspective. It's not, you know, it's from a traditional Catholic perspective. So we're grounded in the tradition of church teaching right from the beginning. And as Bishop Schneider often says, you know, when confronting all the craziness of the world today, he says, no, you know the truth. Hold to that truth. Because even the simple know the truth. The, the Baltimore Catechism is so easily readable. Um, and yet it contains the key elements of the truth such that even the simple, those who are uneducated, can know the truth and stick to it. And so, you know, that's the importance of Catholic media for us. Where do I see it um, going? Well, I see a persecution that's happened already, but I see that increasing in a massive way because the powers of darkness that are so much seemingly in charge of the world today, they see Catholic media, any kind of truthful media as a real threat because they want to own all the means of communications, because it's key to the sort of globalist agenda is to have the control of the media. And that was true for the, you know, communists. That was true. Any movement that tries to take over society for its own ends, they want to control the media. Mm. That, yeah. So I do see a future of uh, persecution even uh, for Catholic media. Wow. Wow! Wow! Yeah, that, that that yeah. So, so this life site news does it? How does it prepare for that, John Henry Weston? Yeah, that's tough. Uh, so, we've just learned to prepare more because you know we knew. All right, they might kick us off YouTube, so we had to make another channel, and we direct everybody to life site news to the video columns because we don't even know what platform we'll be on. Because if YouTube kicks our new channel off and if Rumble kicks us off and who knows what. So that kind of prep has been done. But then what else? Uh, we're following Michael Matt's example in building our own video hosting service so to protect ourselves even more. 
But one of the things we found that was even more alarming than that was that during the experience in Canada with the truckers, mm. we saw the government do things that we thought before were impossible. That is that's crazy. They went after the bank accounts yeah. of the supporters. Yeah. And that, you know, that was a revelation to us. Like they've, they've broken some kind of barrier that we thought they never would. It actually first happened with Trump, um, you know, uh, but, you know, you could say, oh, well, that's just Trump and maybe they mm -hmm. pulled out all the stops for him. But yeah, yeah, when they did it to the truckers as well, that's what we knew. So we're trying to make prep for that as well. And that gets crazy. How do you prepare for that? But, uh, wow. you know, and these are hard because you're trying to do the news and that's supposed to be what you pay attention to. All yeah. this other stuff is distracting, but we need to pay attention to it as well because things are moving in that direction. We've been speaking with Mr. John Henry Weston. I won't call him a doctor. He almost was, but John Henry Weston, co-founder of LifeSite News. Hop over to LifeSiteNews.com. Always, you know, I'm, my audience, you know, we, we share. You know, you look at the YouTube things, like who watches your YouTube channel? People who watch me watch, you know, your, your show. So I'm sure we have a similar audience. So, but if you never heard of LifeSite News, please make sure you hop over there, support them financially if it's, if it's within your budget. We appreciate that. Um, and with my guests on my new format, the David O'Grey Show, Truth, Voice, and Truth and Reason, um, I do ask three. Like, these are really quick. Won't take a lot of time. It's a three, two, one. I'm going to ask you your three favorites, your two favorites, and your first favorite. Are you ready, Mr. John Henry Weston? <laughs> okay. Your three favorite YouTube or Rumble channels. Go. Ah, uh, wow. Okay. Um I listen to you can't you um, can't name anything Michael. that you produce. <laughs> right, good. Okay. Well, that that's a little bit hard, but yeah. So um Michael Matt, um, I watch him often. And then um who else do we see? Oh, there's a fellow called uh, Return to Tradition, or at least that's the channel. Yeah. And then there is um well the next one is like EWTN's Raymond Arroyo or Dr. Charlson. I see them both. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. We 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 share a couple of those. I I watch Tucker almost every day. Um, and my wife, you know, when she hears it, you know, she's like, "Oh, you're listening to Tucker again?" Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, two favorite saints. Wow. I mean, you mean I presume you mean apart from Our Lady, right? Yeah, that would be cheating. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah. Would be. So let's leave leave the Holy Family as the top of the pile. But after that, um, I owe so much to Louis de Montfort um, wow. because he gave me true devotion, which saved my life. Uh, yeah. But there's true uh, Saint Louis de Montfort, and then there's so many. Um, but at least of late. Uh, Padre Pio has uh, has helped me a great deal, and I should mention Saint Anthony because it's my middle name, and he helps me all the time. But anyway, there's lots. But you asked for two, so there you go. Last one: the favorite gift that you've given your wife. Hmm. Favorite for me or favorite for her? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's all that matters. Her favorite, yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. Um. Hmm. She might not have told me that. Um, 
Wow. I would think she might answer that probably the she got the faith, not so much through me, but mm -hmm. that has been the greatest blessing in her life. Yeah, the gift of yeah, that came with the marriage. So much, so much came with that package of marrying you, John Henry Weston. Yes. Was, <laughs> so yeah, that was a good thing. Thanks for coming on the David L. Gray show. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. Keep doing the, all the great work that you're doing. God bless you. God bless you too. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs>